We are continuing our way through the books, book of Acts during this Easter tide. So our New Testament lesson today comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things, from one ancestor he made all the peoples to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps fumble about for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he <clears throat> commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given the assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some joined him and became believers including Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. When Paul stands up at the Areopagus, he is exhausted, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He's had a rough go of it. He's been sent out by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the resurrection and the good news of Jesus Christ. He's also been shouted at and stoned and placed in prison, but, you know, all in the name of the Lord. Paul and his companion Silas, they've traveled to Thessalonica, and Paul does what he always does. He goes to the synagogue to talk about the Messiah. Some folks are engaged and agree with him. Uh, but then a mob forms, and he and Silas are both chased out of the city. But, you know, no bother. Just dust yourself off and head to the next place. It is his calling, after all. But trouble follows Paul. The mob from Thessalonica comes to Berea, where Paul is trying to preach. And the people from Thessalonica, they incite the crowd. So Paul is sent off on his own to the coast so that things might, you know, calm down for a bit. And Paul he finds himself in Athens alone, without Silas, without Barnabas, without any friends, and he finds himself in a city full of idols. And it's like Paul, he like can't help himself, and maybe he can't. He takes his call, his identity as a proclaimer of the gospel very seriously, but he goes to the synagogue and the marketplace so that he can argue. 
a man after my own heart, really. Why sit quietly when you can tell people what they're doing wrong? Especially when you've just been chased out of a city. I mean, why not? But instead of inciting a crowd and causing a riot, Paul receives an invitation. The curious philosophers with whom Paul is debating take Paul to the Areopagus, where he might share more about this teaching, what the Athenians call foreign divinities. Athens is the intellectual heart of their world. Um, I feel like I should make a University of Georgia joke, but I'm not not going to. (laughs) This Athens is the intellectual heart of the world, so it's the perfect place for a debate, for learning. In fact, verses 20 and 21 say, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but the telling and hearing of something new. The Athenians want to learn. They want to hear from Paul. Surrounded by idols and curious philosophers, Paul could, he could come in hot. They're asking him to tell them what he thinks, and this is the perfect moment to let them have it. He's been given a platform. Why not tell them everything that they're doing wrong? This is an opportunity for a fiery sermon of condemnation. Paul is angry and he's exhausted. He's on the run from violence, just trying to share good news that changed his life. But standing up on the Areopagus, looking out at this curious, maybe idolatrous crowd, Paul makes a different choice. He meets them where they are. I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. He has been among them in their city, watching their practices. Paul has seen the ways that they worship, the ways they engage with their deities. It isn't how Paul worships or the way he encounters the God that called him, but rather than condemn them, he offers them a new perspective. He invites them into something new. Because the truth is, the Athenians aren't getting it all wrong. They are on a quest for the ground of being. They crave knowledge and understanding and meaning. That's not so foreign, is it? In my five-plus years at Morningside, I have been a part of a lot of conversations uh, on the search for meaning, and my guess is that you have too. From the sanctuary to the youth room to Zoom book studies to preschool chapel, I have participated with all of you in every age and stage, contemplating, trying, wondering, examining, searching. That is sort of baked into the ethos at Morningside. We often talk about Morningside being on a journey together. We don't come here with all the answers, but we come to try to find them together. It is part of what it means to be human, isn't it? And it certainly was for the Athenians. And so when Paul is presented with the opportunity to comment on their search for meaning, how they find the ground of being, he does not shame them. Instead, he meets them where they are. He steps into that journey with them. Paul sees something in the Athenians. I walked among your objects of worship, and I found an inscription to an unknown God, and I have some news for you. I know who that God is, and that God knows you too. They're worshiping the unknown, something that they can't quite put their fingers on, willfully or not. 
Perhaps the Athenians were a superstitious people, people who covered all their bases by erecting a shrine to an unknown god just in case they'd missed a god in the creation of their pantheon of deities. Or perhaps they were just sophisticated enough to know that there were gods or dimensions of deity that would always extend beyond the human capacity to know. The unknown god maybe is a catch-all or a spiritual insurance policy leaving open the possibility that there are gods that they have not yet named. And Paul takes that possibility, that opening, that god that they have not yet named, and gives a name, offers a new possibility. The unknown god isn't unknown to me. That ground of being you've been looking for is God, the creator of everything. God is not and cannot be limited to the temples you've built or the idols you've made. God breathed life into you and me and our ancestors and into all creation. And here's the really cool thing. That God knows you and wants to be known by you. God claims you as offspring. In this God, you live and move and have your being. Paul is offering them a new avenue to knowledge, or perhaps more importantly, a new relationship. You don't need silver or stone. You don't need to contain God. You don't need incense and prayers and offerings. You simply need to seek the one that has been seeking you this whole time. It is an evangelical move, to be sure, and by that I mean Paul is doing evangelism. He may be offering the Athenians a new perspective on something they're already doing, but ultimately Paul is trying to convert the people to whom he is speaking. And I also think he is offering them freedom, a freedom to find meaning in something so much bigger than what they have yet imagined, a freedom to know and to be known. Essentially, what you're doing, Athenians, isn't all wrong, and the good news is that God says who I created you to be and who I am to you is much more than you imagine. Paul isn't wholly unsuccessful either. Sure, he gets some mockery, some folks just don't buy it, but there are those who hear this good news and are changed, and it sure beats getting chased out, chased out of the city by a mob. Um, I wonder, though, what does this sermon at the Areopagus mean for us? What do we take from Paul's words to the Athenians? We don't have an unknown God, right? I like to think that wherever you are on your journey of faith, when you walk into this Presbyterian church, you know that we are talking about the triune God, Creator, Christ, Holy Ghost, and I'm not going to do any conversion from this pulpit. Sorry to disappoint you. And I, I don't think that there's a need for me to call out idols, though that's often how this text is preached. Not that we are carving gods out of stone or lighting candles in silver shrines, but rather, you know, we are more faithful to things other than God. Shame on you, silly Christians. Look at all the things you worship instead of God. I won't blame the decline of society on the fact that folks aren't, just aren't going to church like they used to. I don't want to stand up here and name the things you may or may not put before church on a Sunday morning. For one thing, I don't think that is the point of Paul's sermon in the Areopagus. Paul's job was not to shame the people he encountered in his travels, but rather to invite them into a relationship with a God who knew them. And so shaming you for wherever you are on a Sunday morning is certainly not my job. And what's more, I'm not entirely convinced 
that your backside being in the pew every week is a particularly good indicator of faithfulness, I'm not sure that's what worship is actually about. Paul knew it. You'll notice that Paul doesn't say, here is God, and here's the good and right way to worship God in order that you might please God and be a good follower of Christ. Quite the opposite, in fact. He says, God is not served by human hands, as though God needed anything. So maybe what we take from Paul and the Athenians is a new perspective on worship. So I'll say the thing that I'm not supposed to say. I don't really think it matters how often you go to church. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But really, what I mean by that is that I don't think your value before God, your faithfulness, your ability to be in relationship with God, your goodness, is determined by the number of Sundays you attend a church in a year. Worship is not an item on a checklist to prove our faith, to prove that we are good people. Worship is not a transaction where you gain absolution for the way you behaved all week on Sunday and then go back out to behave exactly the same way. Worship is not a performance, a place to come to see and be seen. Worship is the freedom to know God and to be known by God. Worship is a relationship with our Creator. This is what Paul is trying to get the Athenians to see. If God is the one in whom we live and move and have our very being, then worship is, or perhaps it ought to be, our whole lives. And that means that worship cannot be reduced to just this one thing, to this very familiar order of worship, or to any Sunday style of worship. It's not reduced to an organ versus a guitar, the Apostles' Creed versus shared testimonies, to debts and debtors versus trespassers and those who trespass against us. Worship should be freedom. I think that unlike the Athenians, we tend, uh, we choose to stay tethered to the known. We prefer it. We cling to it. We refuse to stay from it, stray from it. We know who, are, who we are worshiping, and we know how we are worshiping. We love what is familiar. Familiar keeps us safe, and it keeps us in control. If I had to name an idol that we've created, I think it would be control. That's what idols do, right? We carve an image of God so that God might be describable. And if God is describable, then God is containable. And if God is containable, then I am in control. But the slightly terrifying and amazing news of that is something that Paul has already taught us. God is free. God is not contained in this bulletin or in this sanctuary or in our book of common worship. God's love for you and for me is boundless. And so if worshiping God is about knowing and being known, then worship should be boundless too. If we take anything from Paul at the Areopagus, may it be an invitation to freedom, an invitation to free yourselves from the expectations of worship, to free yourself from control or from the way that things have always been, free yourself from whatever obligation you feel to get yourself here on a Sunday morning. God needs nothing from us. God merely asks us to seek after God's self with open and hopeful hearts, wherever and however that may be. So while I don't think that you are more faithful or just better in general when you come here on a Sunday morning, I do hope that you will.
because I think that something special happens when a community of people turn their hearts together to the one who created them, because it gives us an opportunity not just to know God, but to know each other, and perhaps more importantly, to be known, to open ourselves up to one another and be church. So I hope that you will come here with a heart open to the uncontainable God who loves you. I hope that you will seek to know your creator better just as your creator knows you. I hope that worship will not end for you when you walk out of those doors. I hope that you will be open to new ways to worship, to new ways to engage your relationship with God. I hope that you will engage your relationship with God when you're delighting with the women in your life at brunch today and as you fulfill the promises we made to Hall and his family this morning. And I hope uh, that you engage your relationship with God when you're out on the water sailing this summer and when you're climbing Lookout Mountain at Montreat, and when you're sweaty and exhausted when you get to Lenfoot Inn, and when you call the governor's office for the 50th time this year asking what can be done about gun violence, and when you're delivering groceries for in-town cares, and when you're taking a quiet moment for yourself, and when you're finally constructing that pipe organ in your house that has been waiting for a while, May all of that be a way for you to engage your relationship with God. May your worship be that free and that full. I hope that wherever and however you choose to build a relationship with God, that you will relinquish control, that whatever box you put yourself, and especially the box you put God in, will fall apart, so that you might find yourself bowled over by what you don't know, what you're still seeking, and more than that, May you find the depth of what it means to be the offspring of God, holy, beloved, and known. Amen.